amazing, huh? The, the kind of the beauty and the awe of that. When I see things like that, it reminds me of just the mystery that we're all involved in. Here we are on this teeny little planet in the middle of the universe, hurling around the sun, you know, involved in this activity of living and dying. It's such a mystery. Not only that, here you are sitting on your butts, watching these crazy minds, (laughs) moment after moment after moment, (laughs) on this teeny little planet. in this immense universe. (laughs) Yeah. What to make of it? Actually, I I think the beginning of this talk might fit into this because it's, again, you might not be surprised. It's about views. (laughs) There's something up about views with me. In, in 1981, uh, Ajahn Sumedho, who's uh, uh, a monk in the Thai forest tradition, received a written letter from his teacher, Ajahn Chah. And Ajahn Chah was not known to write letters. I think this was the only writer, letter that he written, had written to his student, Ajahn Sumedho. Very brief letter, and I want to just share with you the last line of this letter. It's really his, his instructions his guidance to his student. And he says to Ajahn Sumedho, the Buddha Dharma is not to be found in moving forwards, nor in moving backwards, nor in standing still. This Sumedho is your place of non-abiding. The Buddha Dharma is not to be found in moving forwards, nor in moving backwards, nor in standing still. This Samedo is your place of non-abiding. And then a few weeks later after this letter was written, Ajahn Chah had a stroke and he was never able to speak again. This was really his final instructions. And, and what I am struck by, just this sentence, that, that this is a, a, a way of explaining these teachings, this activity that we're doing here, is it's, this is a very different view. In some ways, a very different understanding of what this is all about. And what I appreciate about it, and I'll be getting into this or touch upon this later on in the talk, get into more of the meat of this. But what I appreciate about this is that it, um, when I receive a teaching like this or I come across a teaching like this and I start to digest it, what it does for my practice is it, it, uh, it, it feels to me like it shakes up all my usual modes of viewing this spiritual practice. Also my usual modes of viewing this world. And it invites a different view, a different feeling, sense of what it is to be. And tonight is this invitation. It's an invitation for a different view of what this is all about. 
a different view of, of, of this practice. So really just an invitation to look at a different view of, of what we're doing here. And again, just I, I want to come back to the image that I gave to you in my first talk on views from the Zen master Ehe Dogen in his essay Genjo Koan. And I gave you that image that you might remember that he says, it's, he says uh, when the Dharma completely fills us, you know that something is missing. And then he explains it, that it's like you go out on a boat and you're in the middle of the ocean. And uh, the, the ocean, it looks circular, right? When you're in the middle of the ocean. It doesn't look any other way. And then he goes on to say, but actually the, the ocean is neither round nor square. Its features are infinite in variety. It's like a palace. It is like a jewel. And tonight, this is all I'm doing. I'm, I'm saying that often we look at our practice in one way, that we see that, oh, it looks circular. And I'm just inviting us to look at it a different way, to see that it might look like a jewel or a palace, and having this different view might expand it and expand your sense of what we're doing here. And and for me, this fits into uh, kind of what this tradition has done for me in my life. I think for me, you know, everybody uses a different language or a different description of how this uh, what this practice does for them. For me, a lot of this practice has undermined the way I've seen the world. It's allowed me to uh, see things in a radically different way, which has allowed me to be in the world in a radically different way. It's, it's helped shaken or dismantled views that I hold that I think um, are really the way things are and actually just arise mostly out of reactivity. They, they create a kind of entanglement. And when they get shaken up or when they get pulled from me, it allows for a different way of being in the world. And also, I just want to point out, when I share this with you tonight, it's going to feel like that I'm up here talking to you, but really, I'm just down there with all of you. I'm still working this out. And I get so many reminders of this, unfortunately. (laughs) I'd rather not other reminders. I was talking to my wife a little while ago. (laughs) For some reason, a view came up for me that I was really passionate about. That's not entirely true. I not only was passionate about it, I was rather entangled with it. I said, honey, you know, I think, I think there's somebody at, at Spirit Rock that's going to be giving a talk on views. <laughs> you might want to go. <laughs> it was a good reminder. So I'm down there with all of you. And I want to start with a, uh, a common view or story that we're given from early Buddhism. And before I give the story, I just want to say I love this story. I'm in, I, I am uh, sincerely in love with it, and I'm passionate about it. And it's kind of the story that, that Greg was sharing with us the last night. And one version was, he said that one way of seeing the, this path is it's the development of these ten paramis. And then he spoke, you know, in particular about that one parami of patience. And it's a beautiful understanding of this path. It's, it's the story of cultivation that we're given in early Buddhism. Cultivate this and abandon that. And it fits into that other image I shared with you, which is we start on the shore over here. 
as the Buddha says, the shore over here is perilous and fearful. And then through we build a raft, through parami, through the five faculties, through all these lists, the seven factors of enlightenment, and then we sail across and we get over here to awakening. And so I just want to point out, this is a linear description of what we're doing here. You start over here, and then you get over here, if you're diligent in the practice. And you might use this story at times. Maybe you came here on this retreat and you feel like you're over here, you feel like you're over here in your life and you're hoping through this practice that eventually you'll continue to sail and you'll get somewhere along the line, more over here. This is how we understand uh, the spiritual path. I mean, it's called a path for a reason because this is the story. And again, I want to be clear, I love the story. And it reveals certain aspects of what we're doing here. It's a gradual story, a movement where we're moving out of confusion and into clarity. The reason I'm curious about sharing with you a different story is that my mind, your mind might be different, so I just want to acknowledge this, but my mind has been... um, it can get so unskillfully entangled in this story. And uh, it's nothing to do, it's, it's not that the story is wrong, it's just that, the, the, that there's a kind of entanglement happens. And this is how it happens. It's, uh, and I've, I've noticed phases of this. One phase was, this happened about a year after, uh, after being ordained. I just had this, you know, I wanted to be free and it was really strong and palpable. I just got entangled with some challenging views. And then, you know, at times in my Vipassana career, it has also uh, uh, gotten entangled. And this is the story, is that here I am over here, and I really want to be over here. And over here, it can be all kinds of stories. Over here, it's the, um, it, it's the one, it could be the ultimate, the one who is awake. But it could just be the story of um, the kind person or the compassionate person. person. Or on some retreats, it's, it's the person that has deep concentration or moment-to-moment mindfulness. And then what happens is this can happen in a couple ways. I'm over here. Right? I'm over here on, on your right. And then I, I start to travel along the path. There's a cultivation of mindfulness or concentration or compassion or kindness. And then what my mind does is it looks at the gap. And the story that comes is, damn it. I'm never going to get there. I'm not enough. Look at I've cultivated so much kindness, but I'm such a horrible person still. I mean, I just had a whole day of hating people. This isn't working. (laughs) Man. And it's just, so I'm using the path to beat myself up. Or or it can be more like this. Here I am on kind of your right here. And then there's there's a sense of the experience of strong mindfulness or strong concentration or that day where I love everybody. And then what happens is uh, the aversion sets in or the wandering mind or the scattered mind. 
And then I feel like I end up a little bit over here on the right again. So it's like, oh my God, I suck at this. And so then it's, then I have to really work to get more over here to the left if I can. But then I get sucked back by unwholesome states. And so then what I experience on this path, this linear path, is actually a kind of movement. And I tell you, it's not the movement of freedom. (laughs) This, this is the movement of dukkha. (laughs) So that's my experience sometimes of a linear path. And again, there's nothing wrong with the story. the, The story of early Buddhism is compelling, it's beautiful, it's inspiring. My mind is just gifted at rewriting it. And under, what's underneath this is this quality. It's this, this quality, this particular flavor of uh, trying to become. I want to become somebody. I want to become anybody other than me. So that's one flavor. But I also want to show how deep and subtle this entanglement can be. Again, this is from Ajahn Sumedho. He says, When I started practicing meditation, I felt I was somebody who was very confused. And I wanted to get out of this confusion and get rid of my problems and become somebody who was not confused. Someone who is a clear thinker. Someone who would maybe one day become enlightened. That was the impetus that got me going in the direction of Buddhist meditation and monastic life. But then, by reflecting on this position that I am somebody who needs to do something, I began to see it as a created condition. I began to see that I am somebody who needs to do something in order to become enlightened in the future was an assumption that I created. In other words, it was an entanglement. Have you noticed this story, this entanglement? I am somebody, as he he said, what what a great um, description, right? He, He comes to meditation because he was somebody who was very confused and wanted to get out of the confusion and maybe one day become enlightened. And he realized, yeah, this is the assumption underneath it. I am somebody who needs to do something. I am somebody who needs to do something in order to become enlightened in the future. It's a construction, it's entangled with dukkha. It's gonna lead to this movement, not to this movement. Can you relate to this? You ever notice this story and the entanglement? Tonight I want to propose a different story. Again, not because there's something wrong with the story. This story has great uses in our life. But there's another story that can help us engage in practice in a different way or, or, or sheds the light on something. I think both Heidegger and Dogen talk about the sense of in some ways, narrative or story, they always reveal one thing and conceal another thing. 
And so this other story might reveal another aspect of the path. Just as when we see the, the ocean, it may not necessarily be circular, it might be a jewel or like a palace. And again, you're going to notice I've been following these themes. This is what happens. I get <laughs> in a theme and momentum. And uh, again, I want to use uh, a passage from Ehe Dogen, the Zen, the Zen master, because I think he has a beautiful way of describing um, this path. And this is from, uh, there's a collection of his essays, actually the Genjo Koan, which I've been quoting, might be in this collection too, called the Shobo Genzo, which is uh, uh, translated as uh, the Dharma of the, uh, the, the treasury of the true Dharma eye. And there's an essay by the title of Gyoji, which one way of uh, translating it is ceaseless practice or continuous practice. And it gives a description of the unfolding of, of what we're doing here. This is what he says, and I'll, I'll break it down because it can be dense. He begins, he says, The great way of Buddhas and ancestors invariably involves unsurpassed ceaseless practice. A way of understanding it in what we're doing here. In other words, it's continually this continual willingness to be present. This is the ceaseless practice, and it's unsurpassed. This is what we've been talking about. This is continuity. It's just the willingness to be here for your experience, the willingness to be present. And then he continues, this practice rolls on in a cyclic manner without interruption. This is important. This is a cycle. This is a circle that he's talking about. He's very clear this is not a path. This is not linear. And this is very important because on a, a circle, it's important to get the sense that actually you're not going anywhere. It's, it's just right now. And I, I uh, appreciate this in terms of what Ajahn Chah was saying. This isn't about moving forwards. It's not about moving backwards. And actually, in some ways, it's not about standing still. It's all right here. It's right now. And then he, he explains it in a little bit more detail about this, this circle of practice that happens in a cyclic manner without interruption. And he says, on this, in this cyclic manner, in, on this cycle, not a moment's gap has occurred in the giving rise to the intention to realize Buddhahood, in the doing of the training and the practice, in the experiencing enlightenment, and in the realizing nirvana. For the great way of ceaseless practice rolls on just like this. So what is he saying? He's saying right now, in the moment, on this cycle, what happens is there's the intention to practice, there is practice, there is awakening, and they all happen right now. Not in some linear path. It's not like I practice and then there's awakening. No, all right here without a gap. It's ceaseless. 
and it's continuous. It's always happening right now. I find this powerful. Right? The practice is only happening right now and awakening is only happening right now. Awakening is not going to happen some other time. The awakening that happens at some other time is an awakening that is somehow conditioned by time. It's conditioned by place. Maybe it will happen at some other place. But the, Buddha, but the Dogen isn't talking about a kind of a- awakening that is, is situated in that way. He's only talking about the awakening of right now. This is important. One practical announcement. There's there's no enlightenment party at the end of this retreat. (laughs) This is it. No certificates. No big awakening cake. This is all you get. I know, sorry to break the news, but I thought before we get there. And what I appreciate about this is, it's also I appreciate the fact of, of the sense of this story that Dogen gets us, gives us, is it's a reminder again that it's not like you're getting anywhere. And I find this view so helpful because I got this mind and this mind always wants to get somewhere. Often it's always trying to get somewhere other than here. And have you noticed, you can make an entire life out of getting somewhere. We get education to get somewhere. We get jobs to get somewhere. We get a career to get somewhere. You get into relationships to get somewhere. Sometimes you come on a retreat in order to get somewhere. Again, it's a good story. It has its place. I like the story. But it's so confining and it can get so tiring. Can you feel right now what it would be like to drop that story that you're getting somewhere? What a relief that would be. It can be such a burden. And with that story, sometimes what you can get a feel, and sometimes you can get that feeling right now because that's all that we have, is the sense that this moment right now, that, that, that actually if the intention to practice and practice and awakening is happening right now, then right now is complete. Really, when you're really honest with yourself, do, does anything need to be taken away right now from this experience? Really, truly. Truly, does anything need to be added? Because it's the mind, it's the mind that's reactive that says something needs to be added or something needs to be taken away. It's that reactive mind that has that story. This moment, it's, it's, it's complete. And have you noticed how we get entangled in stories of what a complete life is. Sometimes a complete life is a life that that, uh, when you live to, when you're 95. 
If you live to 95, is that a more complete life than if you live only to 45 or 35 or 25? What makes a complete life? What kind of stories do you have around that? Because you can end up spending your entire life chasing after some kind of story of what a complete life is. It's usually what we're doing. Wow, it's so oppressive. Can you feel the oppressive quality of that? I think this is the most appealing thing about practice for me is I see this quality of becoming. I want the complete life and that's what drives me crazy and causes so much suffering. But with Dogen, it's always right here. The Buddha Dharma, it's not in moving forwards, it's not in moving backwards, it's not in standing still. It's right here in this, this kind of this movement of nowness. I think there's a, a way of framing this or getting a, a feeling sense of this, a, a way of being more specific about the practice around this. And this, again, comes from Ajahn Sumedho. He talks about what we're doing here is it's the simple activity of the Buddha knowing the Dhamma. So right now, it fits so well with, with Dogen. So right now, this is all it is, the intention to practice, the practice and awakening. And right in that moment, it's the Buddha knowing the Dhamma. It could be the Buddha. It could be Prajnaparamita. Or back there, it could be Kuan Yin or White Tara. Whatever image works for you. Knowing, knowing the Dhamma in this moment. Knowing the sound of my voice coming and going. Knowing sensation. Knowing sleepiness or alertness. Knowing liking, disliking. That's the Buddha knowing the Dhamma. It's Prajnaparamita knowing the Dhamma. It's Kuan Yin knowing the Dhamma. The reason I, f- I feel this is um, uh, powerful is that often we can get the feeling that it's me that's knowing the Dharma. It's me that knows the Dhamma. I, but that's actually not the case. I, I, I am not the one who sees impermanence. I am not the one who sees not-self. That's the Buddha. That's wakefulness itself knowing the Dharma. And that happens right now. It doesn't happen at any other time. We've all been duped. It's not, it's not us that knows. This is what I was trying to talk about uh, last week in my talk. That, you know, we can get so identified with awareness as if I'm the one who's knowing. Wakefulness knows. It's more accurate to see the, the Buddha or Prajnaparamita knowing. There's something more precise about that. And I bring that up because I think these images are also powerful images for what it is to really rest in the knowing, the knowing of the Dharma moment after moment. The statue here, or Prajna Paramita. 
or you know, make sure you take a look at the the Kuan Yin in the back, the ease that's there. And you might notice each of these kind of images gives a different feeling of what it is to be present. Sometimes I think it's a, a shame how much us teachers talk. We talk way too much. As if the best way to communicate the Dharma is somehow through words. <laughs> I'm suspicious of that at times. There can be so much that we can get from image. From the images in here, or white Tara. When I did my month long, each time I walked into a hall, I'd always take uh, uh, time to, to, uh, to see the white Tara Atanka because for me it was so uh, inspiring on an archetypal level. In some ways, it communicated the thousands of Dharma talks within that image. Or the Kuan Yin in the back, that, that, the ease that's there, and yet the wisdom speaks so much. Images like this can be powerful for us to get a feeling sense of what it is for the Buddha to know the Dhamma, to get the sense of the practice happening right now, that the intention to practice, the practice and awakening is happening right now in this cyclic manner. Sometimes the image that comes to my mind when I'm trying to get a feeling sense of this kind of knowing, this quality of presence, happened, at, I think it was 1990. I was uh, living in London and I went up to Armoravati to do a retreat in the abbot. Again, these, these are many stories about Ajahn Sumedho. Ajahn Sumedho was the abbot at that time. And what I remember, again, this is a long time, <laughs> is I think it was in the morning after the the morning meal. It was so interesting. There was Ajahn, Cha, Ajahn Sumedho in the hall and he um, he was just hanging out. <laughs> there was, for me, for some reason, something disturbing about it. And disturbing in in a good way. Because he was just being, he was just being there. He didn't have any kind of agenda. He wasn't trying to entertain anyone. He wasn't really, he obviously was not doing anything. And it was so striking to finally be around somebody that wasn't interested in doing anything. And then sometimes somebody would come up, you know, bow to him, give his respects. Sometimes somebody would ask a question. He would answer for a while. But then he was just there usually with a big smile on his face or laughing. <laughs> and it was early on in my practice. I'd only been practicing for, I don't know, two or three years, three or four years, something like that. And I just remember being shaken by that quality of presence, just a quality of presence without an agenda. It helps me touch this quality of, of simply the, the, the Buddha knowing the Dhamma, the Kuan Yin Kuan Yin knowing the Dhamma, Prajna Paramita knowing the Dhamma. It's something that you might want to play around with. It's a gateway actually into this insight that I was talking about last week, also this insight into not-self. A sense that in some ways it's not me doing the practice. We just set up the conditions and this unfolds.
And it makes it so simple, just that is enough. Just to know this moment, what's going on, knowing the Dhamma. What is it to know the Dhamma, the Dhamma itself? What, it, what, can, this, uh, what can we mean by this? And uh, again, Ajahn Sumedho gives the turn that happens when the Buddha knows the Dhamma or Kuan Yin knows the Dhamma. And coming back to this quote where he saw, saw that, oh, I have this construct, this assumption, I am somebody who needs to do something in order to become enlightened in the future. And he said, just by recognizing this in as, a, as an assumption I created, that which is aware knows it is something created out of ignorance, out of not understanding. When we see and recognize this fully, then we stop creating the assumptions. It's just seeing, it's just seeing what's going on right now, the assumptions that arise, the sensations that arise, greed arising, aversion that's arising. And and the Buddha is very clear that this is what it is to see the Dhamma. One of the descriptions or one of the characteristics of the Dhamma is sanditiko, which means visible in the here and now. And there's a discourse called the Sanditika Discourse, where uh, the wanderer Savaka comes up to the Buddha. And basically says, well, what does it mean for the Dhamma to be visible in the here and now? Actually, maybe I should get this to get, get the... And the Buddha says something very striking, because especially how simple it is. Savaka asks, the, the, the Dhamma is visible in the here and now. The Dhamma is visible in the here and now, it said. To what extent is, is the Dhamma visible here and now, timeless, inviting verification, pertinent to be realized by the wise for themselves? Very well then, Savaka. I will ask you a question in return. Answer as you f- see fit. What do you think? When greed is present within you, do you discern that greed is present within me? And when greed is not present within you, do you discern that greed is not present within me? Yes, Lord. The fact that when greed is present with you, you discern that greed is present within you, and when it's not present within you, you discern that. That is one way in which the Dhamma is visible in the here and now, timeless, inviting verification, pertinent to be realized by the wise for themselves. And then he goes on to other states of mind that are present or absent. It's just that simple. It's just noticing what's going on right now. That's the ceaseless practice also of Dogen. The intention to practice, the practice and awakening. And it's from that that awakening flowers, realization flowers. And Dogen gives another piece to this which is so helpful. He says, and there are those who realize beyond realization. So it all happens right here, and there's a kind of realizing beyond each realization, moment after moment after moment. And again, I I feel like this is, 
the power of this practice is simply seeing, seeing the Dhamma through your practice. I did a few retreats with uh, the Venerable Saida Upandita here in San Jose and then over in, in Burma. And having interviews with him, it was interesting on a number of different levels. I mean, he's quite a character, but I, I'm not going to get into that so much. But one of the most powerful things about the interviews was not so much what he said. Often what he'd say would be, be more mindful. <laughs> Continue. <laughs> what was so powerful was that it was a, a situation that was set up that I would go in and I got to report what it was for this mind to see the Dhamma. That's what was so empowering. And I'm sure many of you have noticed this from the interviews, is that often it's not what the teachers are saying. (laughs) Sometimes it is. But if you notice, sometimes having a space to express what you're seeing is the power. Because that's where the power is. Because that's the Buddha knowing the Dhamma. Kuan Yin knowing the Dhamma. And we do this continuously, moment after moment after moment, not on some linear path, but in the circle, not getting anywhere, yet still continuous. I'd like to share a story with you that I feel fits in with this fits in with the story I'm sharing with you. The story that this is not a linear path. There's, you're not going to get anywhere. <laughs> it's this continuous, endless cycle. And it's a story that comes from uh, the Lotus Sutra. And the Lotus Sutra is, it's not from early Buddhism, it's, uh, it's an early Mahayana text. And actually, there's a number of stories in in the Lotus Sutra that I find quite helpful to support my Vipassana practice. And I'd like to share with you one of these stories, one of the parables. Once upon a time, there was a mother and a son. And the, the mother was of great nobility and vast wealth. And for some reason, the son at a very young age had gotten separated from his mother and ended up uh, living in other countries, wandering around seeking food and shelter and work and would wander from place to place, just trying to get by. And for many, many years lived his life this way. And lo and behold, one one day, uh, unbeknownst to him, He did not know this. He entered into the countryside, the country of his mother. He did not know it. it. But yet the mother, just on some uh, 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 happenstance, uh, saw her son from a distance and knew it was him. She was so excited that she sent out some of her messengers to come ask him to come to the, the palace. As all of these messengers from this noble woman came to the son, his first thought was fear. Oh my God, I've done something wrong. He was terrified and actually ran away. Because that was his thought. Oh, 
I've done something wrong. Here the nobility is after me. And the mother realizing that he did not have the capacity to understand that he was her son had a different idea and asked one of her workers to go out and find him uh, in the village and offered him a job shoveling dirt on the grounds. And he accepted. It was good pay. He started to live there. And each day her mother, his mother, would would. Um, come upon where he was working in the clothes of a laborer and start to make a connection with him. And they started to become friends. Very slowly and gradually, this connection between the mother and the son. And the years and the years went on as they started to develop this connection. The son started to come, become more comfortable with her, became more comfortable with living in the palace. accustomed to the nobility and the wealth that was there. And then right before she died, she tells him finally, listen, you are actually my son and all of this is your true home. All of this nobility and wealth is actually yours. It is your birthright. And it has been your birthright all along. the same thing for us. It's coming to recognize your true home, coming to rest in the nobility and the wealth, you could say in in the story that we're sharing with you here, of seeing clearly, of actually noticing that it really is the Kuan Yin knowing the Dhamma. The whole problem is, is there's not the capacity to actually truly take that in. It's too much. The mind gets afraid or aversive or thinks otherwise. So we come year after year and practice. So it means there's nothing wrong or flawed with us, or there's, it means there's actually also no place to get. There's not even a path to travel. It's just to notice what's already here. to notice the home that you're already in. This is the circle. This is why practice and awakening is happening right now. So it's this home, it's the home of, of Kuan Yin knowing the Dhamma. It's, it's the home of, of the activity of being aware. I wanna share a little bit about this home because it can be kind of a funky home, a very interesting home. As Ajahn Shah says, it's a place of non-abiding. It's not a place where we abide. It's not a place at all. It might have a different feeling quality to it. And so I'd like to share a story about 
awareness. And it really is just a story. So first of all, I, I, I want to point out, when I tell the story, who knows? As I was saying right at the beginning, it's a big mystery we're involved in. And I offer this really for your exploration rather than some kind of metaphysical stance. And in early Buddhism, you could say that, that awareness is, is talked about in two different ways. There's one way of seeing the story. Just technically in, early, in the Pali discourses, you can see this description of supported consciousness and unsupported consciousness. Supported consciousness. It was something that I briefly mentioned when I briefly talked about the five khandhas. The fifth khanda being awareness. And sometimes within that, it's this, this awareness or consciousness that comes and goes. And then there's also unsupported consciousness. Vinyanam anadasanam that the Buddha also talks about that seems to have a particular, particularly different flavor. And one way of understanding this is kind of like how light is. You know, how light can be seen either as a particle or a wave. A particle in the sense of something that comes and goes or a wave that has a different quality. So I'd like to share some things about this second story, this unsupported consciousness. Again, and it's a story that happens uh, right now and that we can touch right now. So we have this story about awareness that it has a location. And I, I just want to question the story that it has a location. And remember, when I take you through this exper- experiment, I'm talking about what I call the first-person perspective or the first-person experience. In, or the subjective experience, not what science says. Science can be a good thing, but it can also undermine our direct experience. What confirms awakening? My direct experience. Science is really good, but, but this can be a great exploration. So I invite you just to set aside kind of this third-person idea of maybe what awareness is and to play around with this. So for example, right now, just in the activity of seeing, if you're really honest with yourself about the activity of seeing right now, and, and just the sense that here is seeing and seeing is being known, so there's the activity of seeing and it's being known. There's awareness of the activity of seeing. Is there anything that tells you where that awareness is? Is, is the awareness over here near Prajna Paramita or over there? Can you tell where awareness is? You might have a sense of the feeling of where the sense gate is. Sometimes we get the feeling sense that the sense gate is right here. But since you have a sense of where the sense gate is, it doesn't mean that awareness is there. Does it seem to have a location? Check it out. It can be kind of interesting right now to get a sense that it might not be conditioned by location. There's a kind of unfindability or non-locality to it. And it's something that you can taste right now, even just for a minute minute or a moment. 
it's something to play with. There might be other qualities to become aware of. Right now, as you're sitting here and there's the feeling of the body, maybe there's some unpleasant sensations or maybe pleasant sensations. And they have a flavor of being pleasant or unpleasant and there might be a not liking quality to it. That which is aware of it, is it, is it colored by that? Is awareness colored by dukkha or does it see a dukkha, simply see dukkha? What do you notice in your first person experience, in the subjective experience? Sometimes awareness, sometimes awareness can have a different feeling than, for example, the sound of my voice. The sound of my voice, it comes and it goes. The awareness of the sound of my voice coming and going. So there's hearing right now. Hearing is being known. The knowing aspect of this experience, does it seem like it's coming and going? As Ajahn Mahabua says, who's a, a contemporary of, uh, was a contemporary of Ajahn Chah, said, this vanishes, that vanishes, but that which knows they're vanishing doesn't have this quality of vanishing. All that remains is simple awareness, utterly pure. When you're doing walking meditation, it's wild sometimes. You can do walking meditation and there's a sense that there's a knowing of movement, that the body is moving. Does awareness, is awareness marked by movement? Or is it simply seeing it? One way to, to play around with this is using, this is what uh, Joseph Goldstein recommends, is using what he calls the passive voice these phrases that I've been using is, is sometimes I'll just drop on, oh, hearing is being known. Hearing is, 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 is being known. Seeing is known. Sensing is known. And it's getting a, a sense of, oh, hearing, but a little bit of a, 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 a sensitivity or an openness to the knowing aspect of each part of, of the experience. Just a sense of it around these different parameters that I was just sharing. And it's, it's a different thing than paying attention to an object. So remember, if you find something, if you're paying attention to awareness and you find something, then you know that's not an awareness, not, not awareness, that's an object of awareness. <laughs> Ajahn Sumedho gives this wonderful description of, it's, it, this is a practice of, kind of like trying to see your eyes. You ever tried to see your eyes? Like you really try to move your head quickly to see your eyes, you're up or down? <laughs> no matter how quickly you try to do that or if you try to twist your eyes around, it's really difficult to do. <laughs> but you have a sense that the eyes are working. In the same way, this is how we get a sense of awareness. If you tr turn around and try to see it, you're going to miss it. But it's right here, it's right immediate. Awareness is happening right now. Right? Continuous practice right now. It's not somewhere down the road, it's right here. In Zen they have a, a wonderful way of putting it. They say the lychee fruit, a kind of fruit. The lychee fr fruit is peeled and placed in your mouth. It's right there. 
All you need to do is swallow it. The lychee fruit is, is, is peeled and placed in your mouth. All you need to do is swallow it. Awareness is right here. You don't need to go looking for it. It's just to recognize some of these things. So this is the home. This is the uh, one story about the home of awareness that's not really a home. So two last things. One is, um, as I was saying, we have this story of moving from, you know, for most of you from your right to the left, the linear path. And now I've given a completely different story of um, you really can't get anywhere. It's only right now. How to hold these different stories. I think of Walt Whitman who said, do I contradict myself? Very well then, I contradict myself. I am vast I contain multitudes. Do I contradict myself very well? Then I contradict myself. I am vast. I contain multitudes. For me, as I traverse this path, one of the things that's been most freeing is to allow myself to hold contradictory stories, contradictory narratives. It's such a relief not to have to make sense out of it all. And something really true about it. I mean, to tell you the truth, I've been living with a mind that has had all kinds of crazy contradictory stories, and I just pretend they aren't there. (laughs) Nobody says that it has to make sense. All this is is an invitation to take up Stories that allow you to move towards awakening. And sometimes that's the willingness to contradict yourself as long as it frees the heart. I'd like to end with a poem that gives a different description, uh, kind of uh, different words to what I've been talking about, about this different story. And it's this one word, enough, that this moment is enough. There's a poem by David White entitled Enough. Enough. These few words are enough. If not these words, this breath. If not this breath, this sitting here. This opening to the life we have refused again and again until now. Until now. Enough, these few words are enough. If not these words, this breath. If not this breath, this sitting here. This opening to the life we have refused again and again. Until now. Until now. So may we realize this quality of enough really for the benefit of all beings, for the liberation of all beings. Let's uh, sit briefly.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.